Section 9 of The Prussian Officer and Other Stories. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Prussian Officer and Other Stories by D. H. Lawrence. Daughters of the Vicar. Chapters 8 and 9. Chapter 8. No one remarked on her exit. She put on her fur hat that the village people knew so well, and the old Norfolk jacket. Louisa was short and plump and plain. She had her mother's heavy jaw, her father's proud brow, and her own grey, brooding eyes that were very beautiful when she smiled. It was true, as the people said, that she looked sulky. Her chief attraction was her glistening, heavy, deep blonde hair, which shone and gleamed with a richness that was not entirely foreign to her. "'Where am I going?' she said to herself, when she got outside in the snow. She did not hesitate, however, but by mechanical walking found herself descending the hill towards old Aldecross. In the valley that was black with trees, the colliery breathed in stertorous pants, sending out high conical columns of steam that remained upright, whiter than the snow on the hills, yet shadowy in the dead air. Louisa would not acknowledge to herself whither she was making her way till she came to the railway crossing. Then the bunches of snow in the twigs of the apple-tree that leaned towards the fence told her she must go and see Mrs. Durant. The tree was in Mrs. Durant's garden. Alfred was now at home again, living with his mother in the cottage below the road. From the highway hedge, by the railway crossing, the snowy garden sheared down steeply, like the side of a hole, then dropped straight in a wall. In this depth the house was snug, its chimney just level with the road. Miss Louisa descended the stone stairs and stood below in the little backyard, in the dimness and the semi-secrecy. A big tree leaned overhead above the paraffin hut. Louisa felt secure from all the world down there. She knocked at the open door, then looked round. The tongue of garden, narrowing in from the quarry-bed, was white with snow. She thought of the thick fringes of snowdrops it would show beneath the currant bushes in a month's time. The ragged fringe of pinks hanging over the garden brim behind her was whitened now with snowflakes, that in the summer held white blossom to Louisa's face. It was pleasant, she thought, to gather flowers that stooped to one's face from above. She knocked again. Peeping in, she saw the scarlet glow of the kitchen, red firelight falling on the brick floor and on the bright chintz cushions. It was alive and bright as a peep-show. She crossed the scullery, where still an almanac hung. There was no one about. "'Mrs. Durant,' called Louisa softly. "'Mrs. Durant!' She went up the brick step into the front room, that still had its little shop-counter and its bundles of goods, and she called from the stair-foot. Then she knew Mrs. Durant was out. She went into the yard to follow the old woman's footsteps up the garden path. She emerged from the bushes and raspberry canes. There was the whole quarry-bed, a wide garden, white and dimmed, brindled with dark bushes, lying half-submerged. On the left, overhead, the little colliery train rumbled by. Right away at the back was a mass of trees. Louisa followed the open path, looking from right to left, and then she gave a cry of concern. The old woman was sitting, rocking slightly, among the ragged, snowy cabbages. Louisa ran to her, found her whimpering with little involuntary cries. "'Whatever have you done?' cried Louisa, kneeling in the snow. "'I've—I've—' I was pulling a Brussels sprout stalk, and, oh, something tore inside me. I've had a pain. The old woman wept from shock and suffering, gasping between her whimpers. I've had a pain there a long time, and now, oh, oh. She panted, pressed her hand on her side, leaned as if she would faint, looking yellow against the snow. Louisa supported her. 
Do you think you could walk now? she asked. Yes, gasped the old woman. Louisa helped her to her feet. Get the cabbage. I want it for Alfred's dinner, panted Mrs. Durant. Louisa picked up the stock of Brussels sprouts, and with difficulty got the old woman indoors. She gave her brandy, laid her on the couch, saying, I'm going to send for a doctor. Wait just a minute. The young woman ran up the steps to the public house a few yards away. The landlady was astonished to see Miss Louisa. "'Will you send for a doctor at once to Mrs. Durant?' she said, with some of her father in her commanding tone. "'Is something the matter?' fluttered the landlady in concern. Louisa, glancing out up the road, saw the grocer's cart driving to Eastwood. She ran and stopped the man and told him. Mrs. Durant lay on the sofa, her face turned away, when the young woman came back. "'Let me put you to bed,' Louisa said. Mrs. Durant did not resist. Louisa knew the ways of the working people. In the bottom drawer of the dresser she found dusters and flannels. With the old pit flannel she snatched out the oven shelves, wrapped them up, and put them in the bed. From the son's bed she took a blanket, and running down set it before the fire. Having undressed the little old woman, Louisa carried her upstairs. "'You'll drop me! You'll drop me!' cried Mrs. Durant. Louisa did not answer, but bore her burden quickly. She could not light a fire because there was no fireplace in the bedroom, and the floor was plaster, so she fetched the lamp and stood it lighted in one corner. "'It will air the room,' she said. "'Yes,' moaned the old woman. Louisa ran with more hot flannels, replacing those from the oven shelves. Then she made a bran bag and laid it on the woman's side. There was a big lump on the side of the abdomen. "'I felt it coming a long time,' moaned the old lady, when the pain was easier. "'But I've not said anything. I didn't want to upset our Alfred.' Louisa did not see why our Alfred should be spared. "'What time is it?' came the plaintive voice. "'A quarter to four. "'Oh!' wailed the old lady. "'He'll be here in half an hour and no dinner ready for him.' "'Let me do it,' said Louisa gently. "'There's that cabbage, and you'll find the meat in the pantry, and there's a, an apple pie you could hot up. "'But don't you do it.' "'Who will, then?' asked Louisa. "'I don't know,' moaned the sick woman, unable to consider. Louisa did it. The doctor came and gave serious examination. He looked very grave. "'What is it, doctor?' asked the old lady, looking up at him with old, pathetic eyes, in which already hope was dead. "'I think you've torn the skin in which a tumour hangs,' he replied. "'Aye,' she murmured, and she turned away. You see, she may die any minute, and it may be swaled away, said the old doctor to Louisa. The young woman went upstairs again. He says the lump may be swaled away, and you may get quite well again, she said. Ay, murmured the old lady. It did not deceive her. Presently she asked, Is there a good fire? I think so, answered Louisa. You'll want a good fire, the mother said. Louisa attended to it. Since the death of Durant, the widow had come to church occasionally, and Louisa had been friendly to her. In the girl's heart the purpose was fixed. No man had affected her as Alfred Durant had done, and to that she kept. In her heart she adhered to him. A natural sympathy existed between her and his rather hard, materialistic mother. Alfred was the most lovable of the old woman's sons. He had grown up like the rest, however, headstrong and blind to everything but his own will. 
Like the other boys, he had insisted on going into the pit as soon as he left school, because that was the only way speedily to become a man, level with all the other men. This was a great chagrin to his mother, who would have liked to have this last of her sons a gentleman. But still he remained constant to her. His feeling for her was deep and unexpressed. He noticed when she was tired, or when she had a new cap and he bought little things for her occasionally she was not wise enough to see how much he lived by her at the bottom he did not satisfy her he did not seem manly enough he liked to read books occasionally and better still he liked to play the piccolo it amused her to see his head nod over the instrument as he made an effort to get the right note it made her fond of him with tenderness almost pity but not with respect she wanted a man to be fixed going his own way without knowledge of women whereas she knew alfred depended on her he sang in the choir because he liked singing in the summer he worked in the garden attended to the fowls and pigs he kept pigeons he played on saturday in the cricket or football team but to her he did not seem the man the independent man her other boys had been he was her baby and whilst she loved him for it she was a little bit contemptuous of him there grew up a little hostility between them then he began to drink, as the others had done, but not in their blind, oblivious way. He was a little self-conscious over it. She saw this, and she pitied it in him. She loved him most, but she was not satisfied with him, because he was not free of her. He could not quite go his own way. Then at twenty he ran away and served his time in the navy. This made a man of him. He had hated it bitterly, the service, the subordination for years he fought with himself under the military discipline for his own self-respect struggling through blind anger and shame and a cramping sense of inferiority out of humiliation and self-hatred he rose into a sort of inner freedom and his love for his mother whom he idealized remained the fact of hope and of belief he came home again nearly thirty years old but naive and inexperienced as a boy only with a silence about him that was new a sort of dumb humility before life a fear of living. He was almost quite chaste. A strong sensitiveness had kept him from women. Sexual talk was all very well among men, but somehow it had no application to living women. There were two things for him, the idea of women, with which he sometimes debauched himself, and real women, before whom he felt a deep uneasiness and a need to draw away. He shrank and defended himself from the approach of any woman, and then he felt ashamed. In his innermost soul he felt he was not a man, he was less than the normal man. In Genoa he went with an under-officer to a drinking-house where the cheaper sort of girl came in to look for lovers. He sat there with his glass, the girls looked at him, but they never came to him. He knew that if they did come he could only pay for food and drink for them, because he felt a pity for them, and was anxious lest they lacked good necessities. He could not have gone with one of them. He knew it, and was ashamed, looking with curious envy at the swaggering, easy, passionate Italian whose body went to a woman by instinctive, impersonal attraction. They were men. He was not a man. He sat feeling short, feeling like a leper, and he went away imagining sexual scenes between himself and a woman, walking rapt in this indulgence. But when the ready woman presented herself, the very fact that she was a palpable woman made it impossible for him to touch her and this incapacity was like a core of rottenness in him. So several times he went, drunk with his companions, to the licensed prostitute houses abroad, but the sordid insignificance of the experience appalled him. It had not been anything really, it meant nothing. He felt as if he were, not physically, but spiritually impotent, not actually impotent, but intrinsically so, 
He came home with this secret, never-changing burden of his unknown, unbestowed self torturing him. His navy training left him in perfect physical condition. He was sensible of and proud of his body. He bathed and used dumbbells and kept himself fit. He played cricket and football. He read books and began to hold fixed ideas which he got from the Fabians. He played his piccolo and was considered an expert. But at the bottom of his soul was always this canker of shame and incompleteness. He was miserable beneath all his healthy cheerfulness. He was uneasy and felt despicable among all his confidence and superiority of ideas. He would have changed with any mere brute just to be free of himself, to be free of this shame of self-consciousness. He saw some collier lurching straight forward without misgiving, pursuing his own satisfactions, and he envied him. Anything, he would have given anything for this spontaneity and this blind stupidity which went to its own satisfaction direct. End of chapter 8 Chapter 9 He was not unhappy in the pit. He was admired by the men, and well enough liked. It was only he himself who felt the difference between himself and the others. He seemed to hide his own stigma but he was never sure that the others did not really despise him for a ninny as being less a man than they were only he pretended to be more manly and was surprised by the ease with which they were deceived and being naturally cheerful he was happy at his work he was sure of himself there naked to the waist hot and grimy with labour they squatted on their heels for a few minutes and talked seeing each other dimly by the light of the safety lamps while the black coal rose jutting round them and the props of wood stood like little pillars in the low black very dark temple then the pony came and the gang-lad with a message from number seven or with a bottle of water from the horse-trough or some news of the world above the day passed pleasantly enough there was an ease, a go-as-you-please about the day underground, a delightful camaraderie of men shut off alone from the rest of the world, in a dangerous place, and a variety of labour, hauling, loading, timbering, and a glamour of mystery and adventure in the atmosphere that made the pit not unattractive to him when he had again got over his anguish of desire for the open air and the sea. This day there was much to do, and Durant was not in humour to talk. He went on working in silence through the afternoon. Lusall came, and they tramped to the bottom. The whitewashed underground office shone brightly. Men were putting out their lamps. They sat in dozens round the bottom of the shaft, down which black, heavy drops of water fell continuously into the sump. The electric lights shone away down the main underground road. "'Is it raining?' asked Durant. "'Snowing,' said an old man, and the younger was pleased. He liked to go up when it was snowing. "'It'll just come right for Christmas,' said the old man. Aye, replied Durant. A green Christmas, a fat churchyard, said the other sententiously. Durant laughed, showing his small, rather pointed teeth. The cage came down, a dozen men lined on. Durant noticed tufts of snow on the perforated arched roof of the chain, and he was pleased. He wondered how it liked its excursion underground, but already it was getting soppy with black water. He liked things about him. There was a little smile on his face, but underlying it was the curious consciousness he felt in himself. The upper world came almost with a flash because of the glimmer of snow. Hurrying along the bank, giving up his lamp at the office, he smiled to feel the open about him again, all glimmering round him with snow. The hills on either side were pale blue in the dusk, and the hedges looked savage and dark. The snow was trampled between the railway lines but far ahead, beyond the black figures of miners moving home, it became smooth again, spreading right up to the dark wall of the coppice. 
To the west there was a pinkness, and a big star hovered half-revealed. Below, the lights of the pink came out crisp and yellow among the darkness of the buildings, and the lights of old Aldecross twinkled in rows down the bluish twilight. Durant walked glad with life among the miners, who were all talking animatedly because of the snow. He liked their company. He liked the white, dusky world. It gave him a little thrill to stop at the garden gate and see the light of home down below, shining on the silent blue snow. End of chapter 9 End of section 9